for the Bamsey Buzz, the Just the Vax section on this Sunday morning. Um, it has been, it seems to me that every week we're talking about changes and we're talking about attitudes and we're talking about how America is responding to the pandemic. And there's a few things in the news this week that are probably worth, worthy of talking about. And um, I'll just talk from a personal experience around uh, travel, because as you may have read, uh, as of November the 8th, President Biden has lifted uh, travel restrictions somewhat, I would say, for people coming into this country. Um, And of course, those restrictions exist for people going out of the country. Um, Recently, I went home to see my mother in, in Britain. And the requirements of somebody who was vaccinated at the time was that in order to get into uh, the United Kingdom, I had to have a test three days, at least three days before, and then I had to be tested two days after I arrived in the country, and then two days before I left, uh, I had to be tested again. Um, and we looked around um, and found out that the only way that we could do that was by spending an awful lot of money on test kits, and we actually spent between the two of us who were traveling about $250, to, uh, which was sort of tacked on to a rather expensive trip anyway with um, you know, the airline and everything else. The cautionary tale about that was that despite paying $250, the tests didn't work. And when I say they didn't work, the um, the tech piece of it, where you where you actually have to register your negative test, just didn't work. It kept coming back saying we we haven't received your test, um, and it was very uh, annoying because it meant that as travellers. When we got to the airport, we had to test again to get negative tests. So my advice to anybody who is traveling, because the new travel restrictions as of November the 8th require anybody who hasn't been vaccinated that they that they have a, um, a, a, a test within three days. But also still for people who are vaccinated, that really they'll have to show a test. Um, I would call ahead uh, if you're traveling um, and look what the airport is, um, what kind of a service the airport do, because they can do that within about 25 minutes to get a, a negative test back. I think one of the things you might be at risk of doing is if you get a positive and you're at the airport, then it's then it's difficult. Um, but we're gradually lifting um, many of those restrictions. It is, um, again, on a personal note, when we came back to America in mid-September, um, there were about there was it was a a large airplane, transatlantic airplane that was probably ten percent full because at that time. Um, Foreigners could not come into the United States. That's been lifted as well. So people, especially from our agency, because we have people representing 50 or so countries around the world, uh, will be able to uh, make arrangements to to go uh, home and come back again, which is great news. Um, so I think we're making progress in, in that regard. I think there's still a lot of worry out there about the next variant that's coming along. I think we've been talking about a couple of them. Um, but we creep towards uh, higher numbers in terms of those vaccinated. And that sort of leads us to the second point, really, which is the uh, Biden administration's move to make uh, private companies uh, mandate um, vaccinations for their workforce. This is probably the pressure point, the friction point, which is the most difficult thing right now, because what we're doing in this country is we're asking people to suspend their self-interests, many people, um, in for the good of the uh, of public health and that's a very difficult thing to do 
It's also practically a really difficult thing to do. We reported last week that 2,000 of the 42,000 state workers in Massachusetts had refused to get vaccinated. In some ways, that's an enormous success. Uh, a mandate uh, ensures that people who are working in healthcare who are not who are working in other en- environments are not subjecting their um, their colleagues and the public to risk because they've been vaccinated. But still, 2,000 people uh, have refused to do so. And it is clear from a recent poll that was done that many people, so that is three out of 10 people that were that were interviewed who are not vaccinated, said they would give up their job if they were made to get vaccinated. Now, I'm not sure if it's going to be 30% of that population, but it certainly will be a significant number. And so when we're talking about the holidays coming up, when we're talking about the supply uh, chain difficulties that we're having, uh, we hear some real horror stories about how Christmas will have to be cancelled because there'll be nothing to buy present-wise. I think we may have lost the real meaning of the holidays, if that's the case. Um, But... There is real supply train, uh, chain issues, <clears throat> and that also begins with or ends with truck drivers. Um, many truck drivers who are not vaccinated are saying that they will walk away from their job. Um, and so I think the Biden administration has listened to that, and they've put that off until after the holidays. Um, <clears throat> hopefully we'll move as a, uh, as a nation further towards that uh, higher percentage of people. Uh, that are vaccinated, which will but which will help protect us all. Um, and I guess the final piece I would say is is kids. Twenty eight million potential vaccinees. I'm not sure if that's the right word. Um, are waiting in the wings. Uh, in fact, uh, this week, um, the FDA uh, has heard arguments and approved uh, the Pfizer um, uh, BioNTech uh, for. Uh, five to 11-year-olds, which is a significant part of the population. And uh, who knows what the uptake on that will be, but that will be a real boost to get us towards a sort of herd immunity uh, percentage number, which I think is a a move in the right direction. Uh, It remains to be seen uh, what unvaccinated parents will do relative to their children. Um, I think there's still a lot of concern about young children um, getting um, vaccinated. Uh, those uh, those uh, issues existed before with many of the vaccines that were available for for other things, even like flu, for instance. So we'll see how that goes. But I do think um, it's a great uh, outcome that Pfizer have, rec- have recognized that a smaller dose is going to be effective um, for smaller people, uh, those people between uh, five and eleven years old. So those are the three things I think um, as we as we we're doing just the vax as part of Bamsi Bars on ninety five nine WATD. And of course, you can always go to the Bamsi website backslash vaccine to get more information on this. Um, but I think we're progressing. It's different in different parts of the country. In some ways, we're looking at a massive social experiment here when we, when we know that there's massive variation. We talked last, last uh, week about the variation of states 
in, in percentage vaccinated. We're certainly in the right direction in Massachusetts and making good progress. And certainly Bamsey are um, uh, along for the ride in terms of the persuasion of our staff to get vaccinated. And uh, every week, of course, we have a winner of the raffle for the vaccinated folks. And um, and that's, you know, that actually creates a little bit of excitement in the organization. So I would recommend that to any organization. So um, those are the those are the um, uh, those are the big issues of the week uh, on just the vax for now. And coming up in the next part of the show, we're going to be talking about an award that Bamsey recently uh, got from a trade association, the Association of Behavioral Health, and Aisha Bonny, our VP from our Behavioral Health uh, Community Services Division, will be joining. I got my COVID-19 vaccination, and here's why. It won't just protect me, but it protects you, your family, and your friends. It protects our community. There are so many questions about the vaccine. Is it safe? What are the side effects? How does it protect me from getting sick? And there are people who can help answer those questions. Your physician or our friends at BAMSI can help you learn more about the vaccine, too, by visiting BAMSI.org vaccine. BAMSI believes in serving our most vulnerable community members, and that service and sacrifice connects us all for the greater good. This is our shot, our shot to get back to normal, our shot to keep our economy strong, our shot to keep our community safe. Talk to your physician or visit BAMSI.org vaccine to learn more of the facts. This message was brought to you by BAMSI. Be exceptional, be essential, be BAMSI. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Bamsey Buzz 95.9 WATD. And uh, it is a Sunday morning, and we are talking about various things, Bamsey and Buzzworthy. buzzworthy. Uh, And we have a guest today who is our senior VP in our Behavioral Health Community Services Program, um, Aisha Bonney. Hi, Aisha. How are you? Hi, Peter. I'm doing good today. Thank good, you. Good, good. Um, we're we're going to talk a little about a bit sort of blowing our own horn a little bit uh, today, but I think the, the story is a good one. Um, here at BAMSI, as um, I think we've mentioned on the show before, uh, coming out of COVID, uh, that we learned a lot during the past year and a half, and we changed a lot of our Um, policies and procedures and the way that we do things. And I think one of the things that uh, collectively we're pretty proud about is the work that we've done in terms of racial and social justice. Um, And not so much just being an echo chamber of a group of people who meet and say, we really need to do something about uh, racial and social justice. But, you know, as I think the rest of the country became very aware uh, after the murder of George Floyd um, earlier in 2020, which sort of coincided with the beginning of, uh, of COVID, um, it, was bit of, it was a real game changer in many ways in terms of how um, we approach the issue of injustice. You know, and I was talking to somebody last night about how 
the Neil, just to talk a, a little bit about Colin Kaepernick, for instance. Mm-hmm. And I remember when it, when this first happened, when Colin Kaepernick, and uh, I mean, what a, what an amazing human being in terms mm-hmm. of essentially uh, sacrificing his career for something he felt incredibly uh, deeply about. Took a knee and was a pariah in the in the football world mm-hmm. for months and months. And and I, I was actually watching something last night, and I said to my wife, "Wait a minute, can you imagine the change that happened between when Kaepernick?" took a knee mm-hmm. and now it was a sporting event of course it was a soccer game in England and every player on the team took a knee and that's social change now that doesn't mean that things that that things change but it means that we've um, we've really sort of taken the conversation a notch or two up and that's I showed the reason I wanted you to come on the program was to talk because you are one of the architects of all of the work that happened uh, at Bamsey, um, at the beginning of of, uh, of this racial and social justice group, I'll I'll start at the end and then we'll work backwards uh, yeah. because recently our trade association, association, the Association for Behavioral Health, recognised us uh, with a uh, salute to excellence for mm-hmm. diversity, inclusion, and justice. I think I D- missed one of the diversity, words. Diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. That's, that's right. I missed the equity. You can't miss equity. <laughs> Very important. <laughs> and uh, and we made a little video, which I think is on our website that you can go and have a look at uh, mm-hmm. with, with numerous folks. So if you can, Aisha, can you sort of paint the picture of how we got this going in the first and talk a little bit maybe about the declaration that we felt that mm-hmm. we needed to make at the beginning of the process? Certainly. Uh, I think the best way to characterize or, or – um, you know, talk about how we got here is to take a couple of steps back. And in your intro, you mentioned uh, George Floyd. And his passing, unfortunately, was an eye-opener for many people. And the, the difference in his passing from other individuals before him who had passed um, due to police brutality is that we all got to witness it. Mm-hmm. We had a country, a world, a universe witness one man die at the hands of, of, of police. And so from that, people were in shock. People were confused. People were overwhelmingly hurt and hurting from what they saw. I think in that moment, so many people had um, what I like to call the the come to Jesus moment of that could have been my kid, Mm -hmm. that could have been my brother, that could have been my father, my neighbor, my uncle, no matter who you are, Mm -hmm. who you were, or what you look like, I think everyone had that realization. Mm -hmm. And as a result, you had an entire movement um, not just here, but across the world, really. And so uh, as leaders at BAMSI, I think we were faced with the reality of just over 60% of our workforce are people of color. Mm-hmm. And as leaders, what do we do to respond to the hurt, to the confusion, to the shock? Mm-hmm. And the best thing I think we came up with at the time was a work group. Um, and I think a very appropriate and, to this date, pretty successful work group. I remember our first work group meeting here in the uh, Bowman Conference Room, 
and we had a conversation about, okay, so if we're going to do this, we have to do it in a way that's overt. Mm -hmm. We have to be bold. We have to say what we stand for and stand behind that. And if we can't say exactly what we stand for, then it, it really doesn't serve any purpose for us to bring this group together. And you, as a, a new CEO, I think uh, were very open to that idea. And as a team, we quickly crafted what is now our declaration statement when it comes to uh, racial justice and equity and diversity here at BAMSI. Our thinking was if we have this one statement, from that one statement, everything else would follow. Everything would come from that one statement, similar to how we have our organization's mission statement. And so the language in the statement, I would encourage everyone to go and read our statement. The language in the statement is clear. It is bold. It acknowledges that black lives matter because there there is no other argument. Mm-hmm. And it owns that we've 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 made some mistakes. Mm-hmm. And the only way to address mistakes made is to own that they were made. And we do that. And so I think for me as a person of color, as a Haitian woman, and someone who's worked at the organization for a very long time, I felt that um, we were thoughtful in how we crafted that. And it would resonate with, with people who work for us at the program levels. Yeah, I think, you know, going through that, there were so many things going on, weren't there? We didn't know what was happening with COVID. We were, people were sort of taking their laptops home and creating offices at home. People felt isolated. And then some people of color said, well, actually, I like working at home because, you know, I don't have to be um, this other person when I'm at work. This this whole iteration of change was happening. Mm -hmm. And I think... You know, I don't think it was clean. I don't think it was like the first time we got it right. I think it was like sitting around listening to people. Mm -hmm. And I think you're right. Um, Any organization should begin with accepting um, the past and and say we want to make an effort to put that right. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I think what was great is we had people from all over the agency, didn't we? Absolutely. It was a cross-section of individuals all over the agency, and, and people came in with the, the intention of, okay, what can we do and, and what can we, how can we respond, rather? And I think you make an interesting uh, point about listening to people, because one of the first steps we talked about is developing or, or um, offering these listening uh, communities where the, anyone from the organization can come and talk about their experience, their response, their feelings, particularly with everything that was going on. I mean, at this point, we were still watching uh, active protests on the TV mm-hmm. every night. Mm-hmm. Even in Brockton, there were a few active protests um, every every evening. So listening to the needs of individuals, listening to their fears, listening to their experiences and offering that safe space for them was very important for us as as leaders at the time and now. Yeah, and I you know, I do think that the other thing that I was struck by as um, a white male was the 
the impressions that people were bringing to the table were so different from my experiences mm-hmm. and, uh, from from where where I am and I think that really helped you know what was interesting was that the people were coming up straight away, uh, organizations big organizations mm-hmm. you know Coke and uh, Nike and whatever and they seemed like they had some it, it was like okay here's our statement and it, it didn't feel like that to me it felt that we were trying to get to somewhere mm-hmm. where we had agreement about which I think I, I was particularly proud of that people were were able to do that but just talk a little bit about um, I mean Let's have the echo chamber conversation. I think one of the things that can happen with some of these um, committees is that you get a group of people who just agree with each other. But we we said right at the beginning, how do we get this message out? And you mentioned a little bit about the about the table talk, and 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 that's a good example, I think, of allowing people to have space to talk when they don't necessarily feel safe mm-hmm. to have it in a bigger in a mm-hmm. bigger group. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the the table talk um, environment setting gave us an opportunity to have safe conversations, conversations uh, that were more transparent and open about our true feelings or experiences. And some of these experiences being here in the workplace, some of them being in their own communities, but nonetheless experiences that have shaped who they are, who we are as people of color. And so, you know, Having the uh, table talk experience, I think we gave that to individuals. We gave that space to individuals and inviting others to come in, other people of color with experience and knowledge and skill around, for example, advocacy, how to advocate Mm -hmm. for oneself. Because so often, as people of color, we can be accused of playing the race card. Mm. And so the more and more that happens, the less and less you speak up or speak out. And so having someone who has the experience of advocacy come in and have that conversation with us in a safe space was very helpful and very important to, to do. Yeah, and then on the other hand, it was how do we how do we get everybody in on the act to in this conversation? And mm-hmm. I think the, I do think that the the reading uh, groups that we had were really helpful um, and brought uh, a lot of people in who perhaps wouldn't have uh, who wouldn't have been that yeah. um, encouraged to do so. Exactly, and I think our VP of Learning and Development did an excellent job. Sonia Delarco did an excellent job with crafting those and facilitating those sessions. And I want to say the very first uh, book reading club that she hosted was on privilege, which is not an easy conversation to have. But the feedback that I heard from that was overwhelmingly positive. And so I think, again, offering these programs and events, it's, it's really going to get people motivated to to talk, to speak up, to connect more. I think on both sides of the aisle because the more we're able to do and offer, I think the closer we're going to be able to bring people together, the more we will be able to bridge those gaps. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And I suppose this sort of gets to the next question of, you know, did we did we want to uh, carry a message back into our communities as well? Because I think, you know, the big question, I suppose, is that everybody is asking is that we had 
this remarkable social change in attitude, mm-hmm. at least. Mm-hmm. And by the way, mm-hmm. not everybody. And we live in a particular right. part of the country. And but but uh, I certainly experienced a change in the conversation uh, after George Floyd, Armand Arbery, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. You know, um, the question is, did we? What was? What was the lever? What, what change did we leverage, or, or are we just having a, a conversation differently? And I'd I'd love to get your opinion about that because we're what I think we're probably a year and a half in mm-hmm. from that from mm-hmm. that day. Mm-hmm. I think the the one thing and that stands out for me in terms of change that we leveraged, particularly here within the BMZ community, is that we care. I think these conversations uh, didn't happen as wide as they are happening right now. These conversations were more narrow before, and which isn't a, a bad thing so long as the conversations were happening. But I think in the current environment and with everything that we see literally happening around us, these conversations needed to be broader, more open, and more inviting. And in doing so, I think we've sent the message that we care, Mm -hmm. that we want to Mm -hmm. be an organization that is sensitive to these issues and to these struggles because they they continue. We may be having these conversations, but the reality is for so many of us, Mm -hmm. these struggles continue. The fears are still here. And if you're a, a, a person of color, and you have a loved one, I mean, you are still worried about whether, again, it's your brother or your son, mm-hmm. your father, your neighbor, you still worry about that individual. So even though we are having these conversations, there's still some fear or a lot of fear mm-hmm. present. And so the more we talk about it, the more we can bring about awareness and change, I think the more we can impact that fear. Yeah, and I think that gets back to this issue of structural racism in our society. And so getting away from, and obviously, you know, there's an awful lot of conversations to be had with people who are overtly racist, and Mm -hmm. and that Mm -hmm. exists, Mm -hmm. you know, in our communities in the world. Um, But to me, it's addressing the issues of structural racism that Mm -hmm. that really is the most pressing Mm -hmm. issue here Mm -hmm. in terms of our police force and our government Mm -hmm. and representation uh, of all people uh, mm-hmm. in positions of authority and and power, and I think that's you know, that's certainly a message that we want to talk uh, about both internally and, and externally. But why do you think, at the end of the day, it's, it's funny because we we nominated ourselves as organizations <laughs> do, because nobody's going to nominate you unless you nominate yourself. Right. Um, and what do you think it was that that the that ABH looked at the Association for Behavioral Health looked at um, that that sort of got us the award? Gosh, I think there are a number of things as I reflect on it. It it didn't come to me as a surprise that we won the award. I think when I read the nomination, I was very um, impressed in, in retrospect looking back at the work that we had done. I think so often uh, discussions around culture, diversity, cultural competence, and sensitivity, so often those are one-off yeah. conversations, discussions, trainings, uh, or programs. But this has been something in the making for over a year. The momentum isn't getting stale. It continues to build. 
and our membership continues to grow. We continue to offer new programs, new new opportunities for individuals to come together, to speak up, to speak out. And our energy con- continues to, to grow and get bigger. So I think when ABH looked at, one, our bold statement mm-hmm. to kick us off, and everything that we've been able to accomplish between then and now including changes in our own policies. Mm -hmm. I think it it is phenomenal, I want to say, the job that we have done. And as a team, um, to sound like I'm patting ourselves on the back, I think we should be happy uh, and very pleased that we've accomplished so much. But I think we should also celebrate our workforce for for getting us to to do this, absolutely. You you are listening to the Bamsey Buzz on ninety five nine WATD, and Aisha, I couldn't agree with you more. And I was struck by this issue of you know if you take action, if you decide that you're going to be in the debate, if you decide that you're going to be a change uh, and um, a catalyst, it's not easy. You know, it's it's not easy to have these conversations. And by the way, you will be criticized. Mm -hmm. You'll be criticized for not being inclusive enough. Mm -hmm. You'll be criticized by Mm -hmm. groups who say, why are you making Mm -hmm. such a big deal out of Mm -hmm. these people? Mm -hmm. That's the challenge, Mm -hmm. right? The challenge is, well, how do we broaden that scope of inclusion and equity? And I think that's the next piece of this work. Right, right. And the the piece that you talk about in terms of it not being easy to have these conversations, that is 110% true. If it were easy, we wouldn't have these struggles Mm -hmm. still Mm -hmm. in 2021. Mm -hmm. So the sooner people can realize it's the difficult conversations we need to have, it's the uncomfort we need to sit with, the sooner we can get to the heart of some of these challenges. And gradually that that lack of uh, comfort becomes the norm, and it dissipates Correct. as we get to know each Correct. other. Correct. And we've experienced that in our own uh, community here at Bamsey between the table talks yeah. and also the listening sessions. Yeah. I think we've made progress. We've got an awful long way to go. Um, Absolutely. But Aisha, thank you so much for coming on uh, this morning. Really appreciate the time. My pleasure. Thank you, Peter.